Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. Let me begin today by simply presenting to you a Christian truth found across the scriptures that you already know. God uses temporary pain to produce greater happiness in the end. So we often think of heaven as basically just an escape from the pains and suffering of this life. And heaven is that, surely, but it's not just that. There's more to the picture. Heaven is not just an escape of our present sufferings, but heaven is in a real sense the result of our present sufferings. Don't misunderstand me. God creates the new heavens and the new earth. It's His doing. It is not our doing. But He uses our suffering now as a part of what results in the joys you will experience in heaven. In other words, if you were transported to heaven immediately without any experience of the suffering now, it would be something less for you than it will be now that you have suffered. Now, this is found throughout the Scriptures, but let me provide for you one text that says it clearly, 2 Corinthians 4.17. This light momentary affliction, and Paul is talking about all your suffering. Light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. It is not that we have a light momentary affliction and then, phew, once we're done with that, we have an eternal weight of glory. You have to do something with the Word that cannot be removed from Scripture, preparing. It is preparing. Who's preparing the eternal weight of glory? God, yes. But in this text, it is your light momentary affliction. That is the sum of all your suffering here that prepares an eternal weight of glory. You don't get the eternal weight of glory without the suffering that is, by God, preparing that glory in the future. God uses temporary pain in our life now to prepare for us a greater happiness later than we would have had without it. And if you want this said more simply, you can take the slogan, no pain, no gain. And we often use that of exercise, but the idea in exercise is if your muscles don't hurt, your muscles won't grow. That's true. We're saying the same thing here. It is actually the pain that necessarily leads into the growth. Or maybe a picture will make it easier. Here's a picture. Imagine a slingshot. You're shooting upward. So you take hold here where there is a rock in the little satchel and you begin to pull it down. And as you pull that rock down, the bands get tighter and tighter. It becomes harder and harder to pull it down. You get toward your extreme limit of pulling it down. But the further you pull it down, when you let go, the further the projectile, the rock, goes up. So if you just pull it down a little, the rock goes whoop, 
But if you pull it down as hard as you can till your hand is shaking and the bands are ready to snap, you've pulled it. That pulling down produces a greater shooting up. The cross of Jesus Christ is that very principle in display. Jesus descends from the highest point to earth and then is humbled to the point of death, even death on a cross. It doesn't get worse than this. He's as far down as can be. And what happens as a result, it wouldn't have happened otherwise. It is a result. It is a consequence of how far down he went. He is now seated at the right hand of the Father, far above all rulers and principalities and powers. That is a model, that is our salvation, and is a model for what God is doing in each of our lives individually. The suffering now that gets intense, the further down it goes, the greater the joys that await us, the greater the glory, and the greater the delights of paradise that is to come. God uses temporary pain now to produce a greater happiness later. We could multiply examples. You know that when you are out in the cold midwinter and your nose is red and your fingers are freezing and you walk into a heated room, there is a great satisfaction. If you walk into that same heated room in the summer when you feel fine, it's actually rather uncomfortable. It is the pain that makes that pleasurable. When you walk into heaven out of the cold midwinter of this life, it's because it's so cold, heaven is so warm. But it is one thing for us to talk about this, even eloquently and with nice examples, but you know it's an entirely different thing for any of us to believe that and to live as if that were true. And so, we need to take that idea and dwell on it for some time. And God's provided that for us as we begin 1 Samuel, this study here. We're looking at the first eight verses today, and what we find in the first eight verses of 1 Samuel, is we are pretty low down. I mentioned last week we're at a low point in Israel's history. This is the end of the book of Judges. Things have spiraled downward about as far as they can go for Israel. And in that context, now we will find one individual woman, Hannah, who not only lives in a very dark, bleak time where there's no word from God, and everyone does what is right in their own eyes. But she herself is experiencing excruciating pain. So let's look at this. We're going to see the hope that Hannah has. We will get there. But first we need to look squarely in the face of her suffering. So let's look at this. 1 Samuel chapter 1. The first eight verses. There was a certain man of Ramathame Zophim, of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuf, an Ephrathite, or I think probably better an Ephraimite. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other Penina. And Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. Now, this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, 
he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters, but to Hannah. He gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival, it's Penina, used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? I spoke in the introduction about all pain, any pain, preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. And there's a sense in which the passage we're looking at today can be applied to any pain you're experiencing. There is something in this, the principles we'll find here, applied to your pain. But on the other hand, we have come to a part of Scripture that is referring to one very specific kind of pain that some of you have experienced yourselves, and this is the pain of barrenness, what we would call in more modern terms infertility or childlessness. Some of you have endured this quiet, often quiet, long ache of longing for children and for one reason or another not being able to have children. It could be that you are single, you long for children, God's not provided a spouse for you yet. Of course, in Hannah's case, she was married, but in our broken, fallen world, none of our bodies work exactly as they should, and hers, in the case of having children, didn't function the way God had originally designed. This is a passage, if that's an experience that you've had, this is a passage God has provided rather specifically for you, out of His shepherding love for you. Now, if you've not experienced that yourself, this is a passage that your shepherd provides also for you because, like I said before, we're in a local church and we're in each other's business. All of us are responsible to help carry the burdens of those experiencing or suffering with infertility or barrenness. Every one of us has that responsibility. They say it's something like one in eight couples in the United States experiences infertility. And there are more than eight couples in our church, so you can understand that there will be those dealing with this. The rest of us have the responsibility as our brothers and our sisters keepers to one another, to lovingly come alongside. So this is a passage, even if this doesn't apply to you directly, it does. As we consider how do we help those who are dealing with infertility. We are called to weep with those who weep, and that is basically what we're going to do today. So our prayer as we look at this text today is that God would help us to think rightly in this world, to think rightly about the matter of barrenness, and especially about the pain it causes. I'm going to break that pain into two parts based on our text. There is a personal pain from barrenness, 
And there is an interpersonal, among other people, kind of a pain. So let's consider these two kinds of pains here. We're looking barrenness square in the face, and I know... Even when we read the Psalms, you know that some of the Psalms are full of suffering, but you always know that when you get to the end, there's joy, or there is a calling out to God and a trust. Even if it's a lot of suffering being expressed, there's one or two Psalms that actually have no hope at the end of them, but most of them do. And we will talk about hope toward the end of the message, but these first eight verses don't include that hope in them. These are many verses provided for us just to focus upon the suffering of Hannah with barrenness. So that is what we're going to do now, spend some time. If Scripture is, if scripture is content in God's wisdom to linger over Hannah's suffering in barrenness, then we also must be content to slow down and spend some time. In fact, just as a note as we begin, sometimes that's the most unhelpful thing we do in the matter of infertility is not slow down and quickly try to fix it for ourselves or for others. So we're going to slow things down and focus here, like I said now, first on the personal pain of barrenness. For that, just consider again the first verse in the text. There was a certain man of Ramathame Zophim, the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuf, an Ephrathite. Now, on the surface, this is simply a setting. It's a matter of setting. We need to know who we'll be dealing with here at the beginning of 1 Samuel and where we are, and this provides that information for us. So you have Elkanah. He's the main character at first, although things will shift over to Hannah very quickly. Elkanah is Hannah's husband. You see there he lives in Ramathame Zophim, which in the rest of 1 Samuel will go by the simpler name Ramah and will feature prominently. So Rama is the same here as Ramathame Zophim. Ramathame or Rama just means an elevated place, a hill. So there's a high place here. Ramathame is plural, so there's two elevations in this city. That idea of Zophim probably is just referring to the fact that this Rama is located in a region by the name of Zuf, which comes from, you can see the ancestor of Elkanah, the last name on that list, son of Zuf, so Zophim. This is the Rama in the region of the family or the yeah, region of the family or clan of Zuf. That final note where he says an Ephrathite, that's in the ESV. If you have an NASB or some other translations, they say an Ephraimite. I think that's probably what he's getting at. An Ephrathite would be someone from Bethlehem. It seems unlikely he was from Bethlehem. I think this, the idea here is an Ephraimite, because we hear he's from Ephraim. And Ephraim is also, it's right there in the middle of the promised land. It's that tribal area there in the middle. It's north of Jerusalem. If you know your geography of the Bible, you can look in the back of your Bible. It'll have it right there in the middle is Ephraim. And Shiloh, Rama, this place, Shiloh, where they're going to go up to worship, is also an Ephraim. So that's our setting. Things are taking place in that area of the tribe of Ephraim, in the region of Zuf, in the city of Ramah, and then in Shiloh. So there's your setting. And you know your person, Elkanah, and he's going to mention, of course, several different people. Hannah is involved, and we'll see Eli, who's serving as priest there in Shiloh, his sons Hophni and Phinehas, and they'll come up later as well. So this is giving us a setting. Just so you know, 
even though he is an Ephraimite, Elkanah, and is from Ephraim, actually we find in 1 Chronicles chapter 6 that he's a descendant of Levi. So he's a Levite, but the Levites were spread through all the other tribes, if you remember. They didn't have a specific allocation of land. So he's a Levite in terms of descent. He lives in Ephraim, therefore he's considered an Ephraimite. That is what you need to know about him. But let me now make just one observation. So that on the surface is giving us the setting. But you know as well as I do that when we begin 1 Samuel, it feels a little unusual. Because you and I, when we're telling or reading a story today, we do not start with genealogies. <laughs> it's one of the interesting parts of the Bible are all the genealogies, the lists of names, of descent. Now, some biographies today, yes, do deal with descent and genealogy, but for the most part, you don't encounter genealogy. Do you know the name of your great-great-grandfather? Elkanaz was Zuf. I know the name of my great-great-grandfather because my father was John III. That's the only way I know, you know, John, John, John. So I know, but you might not know your great-great-grandfather. This is because here in the West especially, very individual. And so if we're going to tell a story, it's about you. It's not about whoever came before you. There are parts of the world today, we spent a little bit of time briefly in uh, North Africa, and even there, it was not uncommon to find an Arabic person who could tell you their patrilineal descent, their father and their father's father and their father's father's father. We don't do that here. We don't really do that very much here in the way other cultures do. But you notice that's exactly the way the story begins. And you say, why? <laughs> why start the story with a genealogy? Why is it in the Bible? Why is it in Scripture? Do you need to remember that Zuf was in his line? Is that something you'll be quizzed on? It's right here at the beginning of this passage because this is a story that really took place. And when this was written, and in the context in which this was written, it emphasizes for us having children mattered a lot especially having sons. It was the continuation of your house. It was the continuation of your family line. It mattered a whole lot to them. That's why there are genealogies in the Old Testament of the Bible, among other reasons, because one of them leads to Jesus. That's another reason. But you can see that it mattered a lot. Now, you know better than me, better than others, if you've experienced childlessness, barrenness, infertility, it's one of the difficulties is here you live around people who are having children. You may live in a country that less and less values the having of children. A country less and less values the having of children. But you're in a subculture within that country, in the church, where we take seriously the mandate of Genesis chapter 1, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So you're in a subculture in a country where it's expected in the wider culture that if you're married, you'll probably have children. One and a half, but you'll probably have some children. But you're in a subculture within that culture that celebrates and honors the having of children as a good thing that comes from the Lord. It's part of the pain of not being able to have children is the moms who are having playdates. You can't have playdates. It's the friends who are seemingly moving to that next stage of their life and you are left behind. You can't move to the next stage of life. So here we are in a place where it is extremely painful in a personal way, 
if you cannot have children and you want them, because it's expected you'll have children and others are having children. So what are people thinking of us? Now, if I can say it, for Hannah, as painful as that is, for Hannah, it's that painful and a little bit more also. Because she lived in a culture where it wasn't just expected that she would have children. For many women of that day, that was elevated as that's why you're here, to continue the line. And so we begin here, of course, with the genealogy. Hannah faced that kind of a pain. In fact, verse 2 seems to confirm this for us. Elkanah had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah and the name of the other, Penina. And Penina had children. That's what you need to know about her. And here's what you need to know about Hannah. She had no children. Now, let me point to the elephant in the room really quick and say, yes, this is polygamy. And there is polygamy in the Old Testament. But let me rest assured, polygamy was not God's design from the beginning. It was Adam and Eve. That's just one husband and one wife. And when Jesus in the New Testament is having a debate about what marriage really is in this broken world where marriages are not what they're supposed to be, and when Jesus defines what marriage is, he says, from the beginning, it was not this way. So we go to the beginning, it is Adam and Eve, polygamy is contrary to God's will, and yet because of the hardness of men's heart, we do find it in the Old Testament. So you have here polygamy, it was a common practice, not just in Israel, but it was a common practice everywhere, and you and I think that's the weirdest thing, good, keep thinking that, it is the weirdest thing, but part of the reason polygamy was practiced was because of how important it was to have a son. And it seems from the order of this verse, because Hannah is mentioned first, and then Penina is mentioned second, there's one wife, the Hebrew says first, Hannah, and there was a second wife, and this was Penina. It is not at all unlikely that Elkanah loved Hannah, married Hannah, they tried to have children, were unable to have children, because having a son was so important, decided to marry a second wife a common practice of the day, specifically to have a son. And so he marries Penina, commits bigamy. You remember Abraham and Sarah had experienced something similar when Abraham and Sarah, when they couldn't have a child, it was actually Sarah who said, well, take Hagar, my servant, so that you can have a child. That's how important it was to them, have a child. Of course, they had a promise with theirs, but it was such an important matter in that day. It's hard to even imagine how painful that would be for Hannah in a loving marriage as her husband takes Penina, who we'll see is a bully, is a cruel sister wife, if you want to call her that. Notice also at the start of verse 7, so it went on year by year. If you have tried to have children and you can't for a year, you know that's a bit of a scary thing. You start thinking, what if? What's wrong? But if you've tried for five years, or if you've tried for ten years, that is a whole different matter. Hannah has wanted children and has been unable to have them year after year after year. And that is something with infertility that even for me, speaking from inexperience, I can't fully understand or sympathize. Some of you know that experience exactly. Year after year after year of trying and trying and trying, at some point you become desperate. You may begin looking into infertility treatments, fertility treatments. As a sidebar there in your desperation, 
study what those treatments are. For those of us who value human life, we believe fertilization is when human life begins. That is a person in God's sight. And so it really matters what happens to a fertilized egg. So if you're thinking IVF, I'm not going to pass some judgment on that right here in front of you, but let me just say that, and I know you would know that anyways, of course, think through all of that anyways. The point I'm making now simply is this. There are all these ethical questions that come into fertility treatment, but it's one thing for us to think of those financial and ethical questions at a distance theoretically. Say, oh yeah, I know exactly what I would do. You, those of you who have year after year in desperation been unable to have a child, you know those questions, they look different at that point. There's a matter of urgency, there's a desperation. That's what Hannah was experiencing. And so we find a response in verse 7 that's not surprising. Therefore, Hannah wept, of course, and would not eat. I don't know if that's from stress, which makes it difficult to eat, or just fasting. Elkanah speaks of her response in verse 8 as, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? This is personal pain on the part of Hannah. Now, there's one other aspect of Hannah's personal pain, and we have to infer it from the text. It's not stated outrightly, but you can infer it from the text. That is, not only is it just excruciatingly hard not to have children when you want them, but look what you find this remarkable statement repeated in verses 5 and 6. The Lord had closed her womb, verse 5. Verse 6, the Lord had closed her her womb. Now we know from Scripture that all that takes place happens according to God's great, mysterious, and hidden purpose, what we might call His eternal decree. Nothing happens to which God goes, oh, I didn't expect that. God knows. In Ephesians, we find that God works everything according to the purpose of His will. That's what it says, and it's everything. When Job loses everything, he says, shall we, not receive, shall we receive good from God and not evil or calamity? Receive it from God. God is in control not just of the good things that happen in our life, but in the bad. If you flip over to the second chapter, giving you a bit of a glimpse into the future where we're going, but Hannah will pray and she will say in verses 6 and 7 of 1 Samuel 2, the Lord kills. That's heavy. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and He exalts. This is true in every area of our lives, including having or not having children. Therefore, what Jacob said when he returned to his home and his brother Esau said, who are these people with you? What Jacob said was very true. He said, the children whom God has graciously given your servant. None of us deserve children. None of us deserve life. We receive children graciously. We breathe graciously. We live graciously. All the good we experience, 
God has graciously, and that graciously means we shouldn't have it. It's God's mere grace granting it to us. Now, theologically, we know these things to be true. But if you come to a point of intense suffering, whether that's infertility or something else, you know that a part of the suffering that you, unless you're made of iron, and some of you are, may we become like you, but part of the suffering you experience is as you're going through the pain, you realize having the biblical high view of God that you have, that God closed the womb. God could open the womb. God could prevent the suffering. You could be childless because you had a child who died. God could have kept the child. You go through the what-ifs, the what-ifs, the what-ifs. God could have easily, he saw it coming. He knew it was coming. He loves us. He could have stopped it. And part of the pain for the Christian is the theological truth that right now we put into our heart. It is true. Put it in there deep. And then you face 10 years of infertility. Your hopes of a family are dashed. And now you have to say, God could have given me children year one. And here we find the Lord closed her womb. That is a part of the difficulty and a part of the suffering that you experience as a Christian is how do you wrestle through a good father allowing this much pain into your life? You let him allow a little pain into your life, but when it's this much pain, how do you deal with that? I'm not going to answer that right now because we're just looking at the pain of things. So there is the personal pain that Hannah, no doubt, is wrestling with and experiencing and you've experienced with infertility, some variety of it. Now we need to move over to what I'm going to call interpersonal pain in the rest of our passage. See from verse 3 on again. Now this man, Elkanah, used to go up year by year from his city, Ramah, to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. They'll come up again later. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. Now, if you know Scripture, you know that the place of worship for the Jewish people is not Shiloh. It's Jerusalem. It's where the temple was. It's where the worship happened. It's where the ark ended up in the Old Testament. But it wasn't there yet. This is before Jerusalem becomes a center of worship for the Jewish people. Joshua had brought the people into the promised land. Eventually, under David, the ark will end up at Jerusalem. The temple under David's son will be built. That will be the center of worship as the Jews revere it to this day. But we're not there yet. Before it was ever at Jerusalem, temporarily, the center of worship for God's people was in a place in Ephraim called Shiloh. They go up there. It's an elevated place, just like everyone goes up to Jerusalem. It's an elevated place in Shiloh. And the language that is used, sometimes calling that place a temple, sometimes a house, 
with a door and doorposts, and other times saying it was the tent of meeting, suggests that the tent of meeting, the tabernacle that the people of Israel carried through the wilderness to the promised land, they apparently brought it to Shiloh. It stayed there for such a long time that they began to build a bit of a more permanent structure around it. So that's probably what's going on. So it's called a temple, but it's really a tent surrounded by something more permanent with doors as we'll see going along. And here Elkanah's family, yearly, they go up to this place, the center of worship. Now there were three pilgrimage festivals required by all the people in the law to go to eventually Jerusalem. That's the feast of unleavened bread and of weeks and of booths. This was probably not any of those. This was more likely a family sacrifice, a clan sacrifice. We'll see this later on. David says he went to a clan or family sacrifice that was yearly. This is probably something like that. Maybe for the Zufites, I don't know. But they go up every single year to Shiloh. They offer sacrifices and the law said that when you offer specifically peace offerings, you were allowed to take some of the meat, which was a rarity in those days, and you could eat it there at the place of worship as a celebration. That's why there are portions given in our text. The sacrifice happens. Now you have this animal you've sacrificed. You take portions of the meat, which is like fancy stuff, and you're going to apportion it out to your family to eat it. And Elkanah, as he sees portion after portion after portion going to Penina and her children, out of compassion for Hannah, gives her a double portion. And it doesn't fix things, of course. Hannah still suffered. And in large part, Hannah's suffering, as we now see, was interpersonal in nature. It was because of Penina, the bully. Look at verses 6 and 7 again. And her rival, that's Penina, calls her her rival, used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year as often as she Penina went up to the house of the Lord. She, Penina, used to provoke her, Hannah, and therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. Now, thankfully, I would guess, although I can't know this for sure, that if you've struggled with infertility, it's unlikely you have a Penina in your life, a bully who's there to shove that into your face and remind you of it. Probably this was happening in this case out of jealousy. And I say that because, you know, when polygamy happens in the Bible, just like when it happens in some communities today, jealousy always shows up because God didn't design that love in marriage to be shared. So you try to share it, there will be jealousy. Rachel and Leah, you remember that? Hagar and Sarah, there's always jealousy. It's a bad time, so don't do it. But they did it, and so you see jealousy probably is what's rising up as their Penina is year after year with all these portions and her children, and she looks over and it says that Elkanah loved Hannah. Notice it doesn't say he loved Penina. She was a way for him to get children. Now, maybe he loved her. I don't know, but it doesn't say that. Specifically, he loved Hannah and he gave her a double portion as an indication of his great love for her. So here is Penina with all of her children, and Hannah gets the special treatment. And what do you think will result? In a godly person who would humble themselves, no problem. Penina was not a godly person. So year by year, as they go up to Shiloh, Penina makes it her mission as she watches and cannot stand Elkanah giving this double portion. I love you, Hannah. She makes it her mission to make Hannah's life terrible. 
What does that look like? Snide comments? Reminders? That Hannah cannot have children? All kinds of things. Now, you probably don't have a Penina as a person in your life, but I will tell you, and you know this, Satan is the bully for all Christians. And if you've dealt with infertility, those thoughts that in your darker moments come into your mind, so cruel, so hurtful, so self-loathing, full of shame when there should be no shame, but full of shame, are not just your thoughts, but are likely influenced by the great enemy of our souls to make you feel absolutely atrocious. This is Satan's job. He's the accuser. It's what he does. He is the penina for anyone who's ever dealt with infertility as God's people. So you have their penina. You probably don't have a human penina in your life, but there is that interpersonal suffering that Hannah has. Most of your interpersonal suffering, though, will be of the Elkanah kind. Notice Elkanah here at the end of our text, verse 8. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And Why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? Probably if you have been hurt by others when being unable to have children, it has been of the accidental kind. When someone has spoken out of ignorance, trying to encourage you, thinking they can help you, and saying words that only end up hurting more than they are helping, which is precisely what, if I can read this right, Elkanah is doing here. Like many a husband, you see a problem in your wife, and you're there to fix it. That's your job. You're going to fix it, and it's got to be a quick fix because you have other things to do. So you get right over there, and you say, hey, you've got me. <laughs> and all husbands take note, it didn't fix it because she is weeping and not eating in the next passage, right? So it did not fix it. Some of the common ways that we Christians try to comfort the barren are by throwing out a Bible verse. And I want to say this carefully. Like, for example, Romans 8.28. We know that God causes all things to work together for good. That is a verse you should use to comfort those who are suffering. I hope you cling to that verse when you are suffering. The problem is not using that verse when you encounter someone who's unable to have children. The problem is throwing that verse out there like it will fix it and then being surprised when that verse didn't fix it. So we'll just believe that verse better, you know, just believe it better, like I'm believing it right now in my nice easy circumstance. You just believe it better and let's both move on. That's more the harm that's done. It's Elkanah just saying, here's my comment, <laughs> and it doesn't help. Now, what Elkanah said, note, was true. He loved Hannah. Technically speaking, that was an immense blessing. Remember Leah, who was unloved by her husband? Perhaps Penina was too. Yet here's Hannah. She has this blessing, a husband who loves her. How many women want that? She has that blessing. He's trying to point that out. He's using truth. And it's true that he is a blessing in her life, but it doesn't fix it. And often we can do that as well. Here's a Bible verse. Here's what you should believe. Theologically, God's in charge, and that should settle the matter. Now, God is in charge, but don't expect that to immediately settle the matter. Not when someone's really suffering. Doesn't work like that. Just pointing out something positive can be technically true and is not always helpful. Really, what Elkanah lacks here, it's not truth. What he's lacking here is just 
sufficient sympathy and thought for what Hannah needs in the moment. There are other times when we Christians try to help people by guessing what God's hidden will is for them. If someone can't have children, the very worst form of this is if you come to that person and guess, because you don't know, but just guess for them, maybe this is a judgment from God. Don't do that, okay? Don't do that. Now, you know from the Old Testament, at least one time, barrenness was a judgment from God. But you read that in the Bible, that's how you know it. You don't know that for that person. There was the man born blind and the disciples said to Jesus, did he sin? Did his parents sin? Why was he born blind? And Jesus said, neither option. Don't come in guessing God's will. Well, maybe you can't have children because you don't have enough faith. And when you grow in your faith, that's when God's going to reward you and give you children. Maybe you can't have children because of a sin in your past or because of you struggle with laziness. And once you grow, God will give you. You can become such a perfectionist trying to perfectly appease God to get children. You don't know it's God's judgment. And it's none of our business as even though we're in each other's business. When someone is suffering that immensely, don't guess God's will and throw another heavy burden. What if it's not judgment from God and you've just crushed someone who's already crushed? So don't do that. There are other times less aggressive than that where we try to encourage, like Elkanah here, but we do it by guessing God's will, not as judgment, but we might guess something like, well, maybe God has a little boy or girl out there who needs adopted and the reason he's not given you children is so that you can adopt that child. Again, maybe true. Maybe that's true. Don't guess that. You don't need to guess that for them. Do you remember Job's friends? They actually, they get judged at the end of the book of Job for accusing, accusing Job, saying the wrong thing. Surely you've sinned. Otherwise, all these problems wouldn't be happening. We read all that they said, and God says all the stuff they said was wrong. But actually, the first seven days when they came to Job, Everything they said was right because they said nothing at all for seven days. They sat on the ground with Job. That was it. And they did great that first week. And that's instructive for us as well when someone's deep in suffering. You don't have to guess God's will. That's what they did after the seventh day. They guessed God's will, got it wrong. It was terrible. You don't have to guess God's will for someone. Elkanah would have probably done best to just exclude what he said in verse 8. You know, he didn't need to say that. He could be there for his wife. He didn't need to, well, lighten up. He didn't need to say that. You and I as well, that is one of the best things we can offer to someone is just to be in their presence with deep suffering, without guesses about what God and His sovereignty is doing, without attempts to lighten things up and positivity, but just to be there like we're doing in the sermon. We're not providing tons of answers. We're just stopping and grieving. That's what Hannah is experiencing here. Now, I hope in saying all of those things that this will not paralyze any of us because when you start to hear stories about people who comforted others poorly, you go, okay, I'm just not going to comfort anybody because I don't want to be an illustration in the pastor's next sermon. <laughs> You've got to be in people's business. Let's pray for wisdom to help those who are suffering, especially here with barrenness. Now, I hope now you can see as we've walked through this story how far down the slingshot is pulled, and it will go further still next week. 
Eight verses and more of pulling the slingshot down, the bands quiver under the strain. The first verses of 1 Samuel are by God's design not pleasant, but rather painful verses about a painful subject. Yes, they introduce to us many of the main characters, Elkanah and Hannah and Eli, his sons, Hophni and Phinehas and Ramah and Shiloh, but that is not the only purpose of these verses being here. These verses are here to make sure you really understand how much Hannah was suffering. Because when you encounter suffering, it's the first thing you should do. Slow down at least as slow as Scripture does. And just be with someone who is suffering. Those who are not able to have a child have experienced a kind of death. There are those who've lost their children. It's a literal death. There are those who have dreamed of a family and cannot have a family. It's a kind of death. What they had hoped for their future dies. Even Jesus wept in the face of death. And then after he wept, he undid the death. And that is the Christian approach. Not to get rid of weeping and fix things easily, but it is to weep and to grieve with those who are grieving and come alongside them and not offer cliches and easy pat answers and guesses of God's will. But we come alongside like Jesus, weeping the tears, feeling the compassion, and then we have a message that death will be undone, including the many deaths that you experience with infertility. There will be an undoing of those things. We will not jump to that answer. You will grieve first and get to that answer, but that is the Christian answer. And if we can, as we end, just peek down to verse 20 and violate all the laws of good reading and read the end of the story and in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel. We dare not jump there too quickly, but we have to go there. We are Christians. We grieve, but not as those who have no hope. And this is true in the matter of barrenness. This story of Hannah will lead to Samuel, who will anoint David, the greatest king of God's people, who is a shadow of Christ, his descendant, who will save the world. Did Hannah know her barrenness had a part in saving the world? No, she didn't. But God knew. Some of you who don't have children now, but want children, will have children. You will live, verse 20, and you will rejoice and thank God. And in this life, some of you won't. Others of you will have the string on your slingshot pulled even further down. But it's only so that when it gets that far down, when this brief life passes, you will soar into realms of happiness that are hard to imagine at this moment. Your childlessness is preparing for you an eternal weight of glory as you cling to the only one who really gets you, the Son of David, Jesus Christ Himself. For you is reserved this promise of the Scriptures that is not for the rest of us, but specifically is for you in Isaiah 56, when there were eunuchs among God's people, men who could not have children, and they said, I'm a dry tree. It's the end of my line. It's the end of my house. And through Isaiah, God said, Thus says the Lord to the eunuchs and all the childless, who hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better 
not good, better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off.